0: Well, we 're continuing right along in our series, seeing and savoring Jesus Christ, which, uh, as i 've said many times, every now and then we have visitors, so it 's a chronological study of jesus earthly life and ministry, and we pick things up uh, in Matthew immediately after Jesus has finished the Sermon on the Mount. So today, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter eight, Matthew chapter eight now As you're turning there, I will let you know that next week we're going to break away from our Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ series for a a special message, a Thanksgiving message. And then we will go from there into an Advent series, which we will do right up until the New Year, a series of sermons based, of course, on the birth of Christ. As you're finding Matthew 8, I'll remind you of how Matthew 7 ended. This is right after the Sermon on the Mount ended. Matthew gives us this comment. Matthew 7 Verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The people listening to Jesus were astonished. They were astonished by the authority with which Jesus speaks. And now Jesus comes down from that mountain and into the crowds. And so he's been speaking with authority, and now he's about to, yet again, display his authority through several miraculous signs. And this is how it works in the Scriptures. That the signs serve to back up or to confirm the words of authority. Wonders confirm the word. Miracles confirm the message. And in this case, the authority over sickness confirms the authority of the gospel message that Jesus has been proclaiming to the people, including what he proclaimed in this Sermon on the Mount. Now Jesus is demonstrating the authority he has over both sin and sickness, over the material world and the spiritual world, over all things. So now here in Matthew's Gospel, we read that Jesus comes down from the mountain and begins to perform some astonishing, some authoritative miracles. And the first one we read of, It's going to be in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Now, because we are doing a chronological study of the life of Christ, I'll remind you that we actually already covered this miracle as we journeyed through the life of Jesus. This is a chronological study where we've harmonized all the Gospels. And so we already covered this healing of a leper in verses 1 through 4 because most scholars chronologically place this miracle before the Sermon on the Mount. But Matthew puts it here after the Sermon on the Mount. It might have been after the Sermon on the Mount. But you need to remember that that the Gospels aren't necessarily structured chronologically. Chronology to an ancient writer isn't as important as it does to us. What is important to an ancient writer was the theme. And Matthew is carefully putting together a theme here as he shares with us the true historical events of Jesus' life. And he puts it together in a manner to convey exactly what he's trying to say. And so we see the authority of Jesus in the sermon. And now Matthew wants to give us some examples of some miracles that display that authority. Matthew's main theme in his gospel is that Jesus is indeed the promised Messiah of the nation of Israel. We see this throughout his frequent mentionings of Jesus being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It's all over the book of Matthew. At the same time, Matthew is showing us that Jesus himself is the the final fulfillment of Israel. He is the obedient son. He is the Israel of God. He is the singular offspring of Abraham that Paul speaks of in Galatians 3. The nation itself never obeyed God, but the unbreakable promises of God were fulfilled in and through and for Jesus. So it's essential for Matthew to establish Jesus' messianic authority. and That's what he's trying to do in this In these texts, to establish Jesus' messianic authority. And therefore, he puts several miracles together that demonstrate that authority right after this sermon where Jesus has spoken with such authority. So with that said, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. And I will recap a little bit of what we learned about the healing of the leper. But we're going to focus primarily on verses 5 through 13, the healing of the centurion's servant. But please stand now as we get ready to read Matthew 8 verses 1 through 13 Matthew chapter 8 beginning in verse 1 the reason we stand is because we believe that as we read these words it is not me who speaks but God Matthew chapter 8 beginning in verse 1 when he came down from the mountain great crowds followed him and behold a leper came to him And knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, He marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would add now your blessing to this reading of the word. Grant me the grace to speak correctly this morning, to interpret correctly, and grant all of us ears to hear your word correctly. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. It's my favorite time of the year when it comes to sports because it's football season and I love watching good football games and, and, and astonishing or feats, astonishing uh, athletic endeavors. And that's why I like watching the Olympics. Watching these guys just blow my mind with some of the things they do, these guys and gals. And so when we watch sports sometimes, we're astonished or we marvel at what we're looking at. And so I want to show you a real quick clip. I don't usually show whole lots of videos in church these days, but I want to show you a real quick clip of a, of something that's just a little bit astonishing, marvelous, if you will, if we want to use that language for a sports feat. Now, let me set it up. It's a real short clip. This is a, a young man in college who is now, uh, he, he gets an opportunity to win a truck if he can make a layup, and then if he can make a, a free throw, and then if he can make a three-pointer, and then if he can make a half-court shot, all within the span of 30 seconds. Okay, so that's the video you're going to watch here. So as it starts, he's got to start. Now, you'll see early on, he's not a very good basketball player. You'll discover that. And, but I want you to watch this little video because the, what caught my attention as I was preparing for the sermon this week was the clip was called An Astonishing Clip. So real quick, just watch this. And I may talk a little bit over it so you can kind of understand what you're seeing in case the video doesn't show up good on the screen. There's the guy. Didn't do too good with the first layup. Now, remember, this is 30 seconds. The seconds are counting down here. At the end, just in the, the clock at the top of how much time he has left. Now he's got to do the three-pointer. He's running out of time. He's running out of time. You can see six seconds left. Now he's got to hit one half-quick shot. Boom! All right, so the kid wins a truck, and he's a college kid, so he's probably totaled it by now, all right? There we go. Now, as I watch that clip, I'm, wow, that was astonishing. That was amazing. And you watch it, and you're going, wow, I had to watch it a few times but I actually enjoy watching the celebration at the end. I like watching these actually good basketball players cheering for the, the frizzy head dude that doesn't, can't play worth beans, right? And so it's kind of fun watching it. Now, as we Think about the life of Jesus, and as you read the Gospels, there's many, many places in the Gospels where everyone is astonished or amazed by Jesus. Sometimes it's by the words he speaks, which we see at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, right? They're astonished. By what they've heard from Jesus. Sometimes it's the miracles he's doing. And these aren't just miracles that, that like you see by the televangelist on TV, some psychosomatic illness that's fixed because some guy, you know, thinks he doesn't feel good in his tummy or something. These are these are limbs that all of a sudden go back in the right position. This is leprosy that, that's, that's causing skin to flake off that all of a sudden just disappears. These are authentic, amazing, astonishing miracles. And we see this all throughout the Gospels. We see that crowds are amazed, astonished. Or are marveling at Jesus. We see even the Pharisees marvel at Jesus' audacity to disregard their traditions. We see the disciples marvel as Jesus demonstrates his authority over the winds and the waves. And all other sorts of natural phenomena that Jesus demonstrates his his mastery over. His ability to walk on water. He is Lord. Even Pilate, during Jesus' trial, was astounded by Jesus. By all accounts in the Gospels, Jesus is astonishing. He is amazing, and people marvel at Jesus. But you know what? There are two places in Scripture, two places in Scripture where it says Jesus was astonished. Jesus was amazed, or where Jesus marveled. Only two places in Scripture. One is in this text today, and the other is in Mark chapter 6. In today's text, verse 10 says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He marveled. That word means astonished or he was amazed. Now of course in his divine nature Jesus is never surprised or caught off guard. We need to understand that but we also need to understand that he is 100% man so his human nature in his human nature he experiences the full range of human emotion including astonishment at the paradigm shifting experience that happens in this text here today. Now, the first thing Matthew brings to our attention is Jesus' healing of the leper. I mentioned to you already that we already covered this passage in our study through the life of Jesus. But I want to read it real quick and remind you of what we observed way back on September 29th of 2013. So it was a while ago when we looked at this text. Matthew 8, verse 1 says, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. So I'll remind you of what we we studied. The first thing we observed was was the leper's dangerous coming to Jesus despite being an outcast. It was dangerous for him to come to Jesus. He could be in a lot of trouble for not staying where lepers were. We're supposed to stay. So we see that he came to him, and then we observe the leper's desperate cry because he was an outcast. He knelt before Jesus, saying, "Lord, if you will, you can make me clean." He was an outcast; he was not supposed to be around anybody. And then we observed our Lord's daring compassion as he reaches out and touches the outcast. It was insane for anyone to touch a leper. Matter of fact, it was against the law. But Jesus stretched out his hand and. Touched him. And then we observed our Lord's definitive cleansing that he poured out upon this outcast. He said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy was cleansed. Most healings in the scriptures use that word healing, but in this case it refers to cleansing because not only was a leper considered ill, he was considered cursed. So as Jesus reaches out and cleanses him, he's also saying he is removing a curse on this man. And then we observed our Lord's disregarded command, which made Jesus an outcast. Because what we see is that in verse 4, he says, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. But in the parallel passage, the one we studied in Mark chapter 1, verse 45, it says this, But he, the leper, went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news So that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So this leper's unwillingness to obey the words of Christ actually led to Jesus being an outcast. But there's a beautiful picture here. Jesus becomes the outcast that we once were. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus identifying with us and taking our place. So that just recaps what that sermon was all about way back over a year ago. We see in this text, though, what Matthew is trying to point out is Jesus' authority over sickness. And in Mark's account, we know that Jesus' authority is disregarded by this man because he goes out and immediately begins to disobey Jesus. But then comes another man. In verse 5, it says, When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. A centurion came to him. Now, centurions were vital military positions in the Roman army. They were the backbone of the military structure that maintained discipline and executed orders. Centurions in Palestine were under the direct command of Herod Antipas. And he often deployed them to to remote places like Capernaum to collect taxes. Now, Capernaum had an abundant fishing industry. So by all means, Herod wanted to get a little bit of that money, and so apparently this centurion was stationed there on a more permanent basis. So there would be nobody in this whole region that was more powerful than this centurion. Even the local Jewish rulers had to submit to Rome's authority and therefore would have to submit to this centurion's authority. Now the servant mentioned here in this text is probably a young boy. The word used seems to indicate it was a young boy, a slave, ...probably even a Jewish slave boy. We don't know what his sickness was. All we know is that it involved some sort of paralysis... ...and it was causing the boy tremendous pain and tremendous suffering. These are not the kind of diseases that people in ancient days recovered from. So this whole situation, though, is is a little bit different than the situation before with the leper. You see, the leper was an outsider because of his leprosy. But this man here, this centurion is an outsider because of his ethnicity. He's a Gentile. The leper was a despised man due to his disease, but as we will see later in this text, this centurion was actually a respected man due to his good deeds. The leper was a weak man with no societal right to come to Jesus. But the centurion is a very powerful man with every societal right to actually come and command Jesus to do this. The leper goes away and then surely disappointed our Lord with his disobedience. Yet we will see this centurion goes away and astonishes our Lord with his faith. So let's look at that faith this morning. The first thing I want us to see is that Jesus is astonished by the centurion's faith. Jesus is astonished by the centurion's faith. And we see that it is a faith that acknowledges one's own absolute insufficiency. So what type of faith astonishes Jesus here in this text? It's a type of faith where a person recognizes his own absolute insufficiency. That's what we see here. Let's look at verse 8 again. When he had come into Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Here we have this first astonishing thing. This man, this man of great power, this man of prestige, rightly understood his own unworthiness, his own insufficiency before Jesus. What is on display here in the words of this man is exactly what Jesus spoke of at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit... For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what we see here in this centurion. This man recognizes his own poverty of spirit in light of who Jesus claimed to be, and in light of who Jesus has shown himself to be. How dare he, a mere man, a sinful man at that, have Jesus come into his home? This man recognized his own insufficiency. Oh, friends, we need to learn from this man. This is the type of person Jesus delights to come to. This is the type of person Jesus delights to minister to. This is the type of person who receives from Jesus more than physical healing, but spiritual healing in the depths of one's soul. As we read in Isaiah 66, verse 2, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's the type of person... Jesus loves to minister to. Jesus delights to minister to the broken hearted, to the poor in spirit, to the humble, to the modest, to the meek, to the one who day in and day out recognizes his or her own sin. And not only recognize it, but sees it and loathes it. Oh, how Jesus gladly gives grace to the humble and sadly opposes the proud. Pride infects the leper as much as A centurion. And likewise, humility graciously comes upon lepers as much as it comes upon centurions. It's the humble. It doesn't matter what station of life you're in. The humble, broken man is the one who astonishes Jesus in this text. Now, upon seeing the holiness of Jesus, the centurion responds a lot like Isaiah responded in Isaiah 6, verse 5 Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Remember, Isaiah saw this vision of of the glory of God and he responded not with, wow, hey, let me write a praise song. No, he responds with, woe is me, I deserve to be dead. When people talk to you today about visions they've seen of God, and that's followed up by a best-selling book, that's a good indication they didn't really see God. Those who've truly seen the holiness of God in Scripture are people that end up flat on their faces. Just like the Apostle Peter in Luke chapter 5 verse 8. After he saw the miraculous catch, he says this. He fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And so for the centurion it's these words, Lord I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. He was in a position to order Jesus to do this, but he didn't. He realized that the authority of Rome didn't make him worthy, but neither did the admiration of the people. You see, we know from the parallel text that this man was a good man. He did good works, he did good deeds. He actually built a tabernacle, I mean, a, um, a synagogue for the people, and therefore he was admired by the people. In Luke's account, we, re- we read a little bit more about this centurion. Matter of fact, it says that the centurion himself didn't actually come to Jesus, but he sent some of the Jewish elders to come and to speak to Jesus on his behalf. So you may say, well, how come these two accounts don't, don't match up? Well, Mark's, I mean, Matthew's focusing on the words that this man gave these people to say to Jesus, and Luke's focusing more on some of the other details involved. We can reconcile that easily. Just like when the, the president of the United States speaks, who does he speak through a lot of times? Well, that guy standing in front of the podium that's called the press what secretary or whatever his name is, who's usually, you know, he'll spin things for the president, right? And so, but when you hear, well, President Obama said this, a lot of times it's coming from a White House official or someone else. So that's the case here. The centurion did indeed speak. He sent people to speak to Jesus on his behalf. And what we notice from that Luke account is that these elders from the, these Jewish elders went for the centurion because he was admired by them. The Jewish people admired the centurion. He did lots of good deeds, but neither his authority that he had from Rome nor the admiration that he had from the people made him sufficient to come before Jesus and request anything. Matter of fact, here's Luke's account. These are the Jewish elders that say, they came to Jesus and they pleaded with him earnestly saying, and they're speaking of the centurion here, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he is the one who built our synagogue. What did they say? They said he is worthy. Everyone thought he was worthy except the centurion himself. He was by all accounts a good guy. He loved the Jewish people. He built synagogues. He's even pleading for the life of a of an insignificant Jewish slave boy. He's a good guy. If there be anyone here this morning that thinks that you can stand before God and claim your goodness on that day of judgment, you are a fool. This man wasn't willing to claim. He built churches for goodness sakes. He wasn't willing to claim his goodness. He simply said, I'm not worthy. I am not worthy. Oh, man or woman here today, how many of us are tempted to think there's something in us that warrants God's attention. Our depravity warrants us only one thing, hell. Anything less is grace. We do not deserve Jesus' mercy and healing In faith, the faith that pleases Christ is a faith that recognizes this. As for this man, Jesus was astonished at at this man that that a man of such power and prestige understood his own unworthiness, but it's more than that. Jesus is astonished by by the centurion's faith, secondly, because it's a faith that recognizes Jesus as supreme authority. So he acknowledges his own insufficiency, but he recognizes Jesus' supreme authority. The first indicator of that is what, he, is what he calls him. In verse 6, he calls him Lord. He does it twice. He does it again in verse 8. Lord. Now, Lord was a title of respect, like sir. And so it may just be that this man is showing deference and respect to Jesus. But Lord also meant much more to those who truly followed Jesus. It meant that Jesus was the king. He is the king, and ultimately that he was God. And surely in light of the Sermon on the Mount, and in light of how Jesus uh, has spoken in this sermon, in light of what this man has, has at least heard of what Jesus has been doing, I think he's being more than just polite here. He is acknowledging that Jesus is a divine king. Now, he may not have a full grasp of the Trinity, He may not have a full grasp of the the deity of Christ, but I think he knew. He knew that in this man, this man who had authority that came from God, in this man was his only hope. And so he calls him Lord. And that is confirmed for us later in what he says to Jesus in verse 9. He says, For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. This was a man who understood authority. His whole life was built on the hierarchical structure of military. So he understood how authority worked. He says, for I too, I too am a man under authority. And we need to see here this morning that there's two aspects of this military authority. First, there is the authority placed on him. I'm talking about the centurion now. There's the authority placed on him as an emissary of Rome. So his authority comes from somewhere. He doesn't just show up on the scene and say, hey, I'm a centurion. He's, he's been placed there by somebody who has placed authority on him. And secondly, there's now authority that flows from him to command what he wants. To fight wars, to, to command what he wants in that region. And certainly we see both aspects of this authority in mind here as he compares Jesus's authority to his own. First, Jesus's authority comes from somewhere. This man knew that the reason he could command, that Jesus could command what he willed, was due to the fact that he had a higher authority placed on him. The authority for, for, the, for this man here, this centurion, the authority of Rome had been given to him, or had been given to Herod, and then had been given to him to keep the orders and to keep, ...things in in line in the region of Palestine. This man knew how that worked. So he recognizes that Jesus must have some higher authority... ...that's giving him the ability to do these things. He knew that Jesus had the very authority of God at his disposal. He recognized that Jesus, as Jesus himself would later teach... ...that he possessed supreme authority from on high. Authorities to speak for God the Father. John 12, 49... This is Jesus, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. So the authority from God to speak. Authority over his own destiny, Jesus has. John ten seventeen, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. By the way, this charge I have received from my father's military language. Authority to declare where all other authority comes from. John nineteen ten. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. And Jesus had authority to judge. John five twenty seven, And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. And Jesus has authority to give eternal life. John 17, 1. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Jesus had supreme authority and this centurion. He sees it. The question is, do you? How many people come to Jesus in our day and try to make him their utilitarian God? They view Jesus as their own personal savior in a box. Their own personal divine Swiss army knife that they can pull out to fix whatever problem they might be having in their life. They view Jesus as a genie, as a magic eight ball, a slot machine, a personal life coach, a psychologist, a mentor, an example, a homeboy, but they don't see him as Lord, supreme Lord with all authority. How many people come at Jesus like that? And therefore they do not fear the one who has authority to cast them into hell. Jesus is not to be used. He's to be feared. He he does not deserve your admiration. He deserves your awe. The centurion got it. He understood that Jesus' authority came from somewhere, namely from God. And he also understood that Jesus' authority could do something. It could accomplish something. And that's why he says to him, you know, And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. In other words, he knows that Jesus, all he has to do is say a word, and the disease would go away. Jesus, if you say paralysis, go away, it goes away. Jesus, if you say pain, stop, it stops. He knew what others didn't know. He knew what others didn't know when they saw Jesus' signs, namely that Jesus has the raw, inherent power to simply command sickness away. He didn't have to perform any tricks, conjure up any potions, recite any incantations. Just like in the beginning, he simply speaks and it's done. Just as he told the leper, I will be clean. If Jesus wills, it happens, period. So friends, we should not be afraid as followers of Christ to to ask for him to heal. Jesus does still heal. He has healed. But know that he may choose not to heal. Now, I'm not speaking of a gift of healing within the body. I'm just talking about what God can do, period. What Jesus can do. He still rules. And so he has supreme authority. I think it's okay to, to have astonishing type of faith where we simply come before Jesus and say, will you do this? Astonishing faith doesn't force Jesus, though, to do what we wish. Astonishing faith trusts Jesus to do whatever he wills. It trusts in ...and submits to his authority. Now in this case, Jesus marvels at this man's audacious faith. We read in verse 13, And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The centurion had astonishing faith that first acknowledged one's own absolute insufficiency. A faith that recognized Jesus' supreme authority. And finally... A faith that previews the kingdom's far-reaching diversity. A faith that previews the kingdom's far-reaching diversity. Now first I want us to notice the continuing theme here from the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus, at, the, at least from the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus has been contrasting those who are in the kingdom and those who are not. Those who are on the right road, under right teaching, making right professions of faith, building on the right foundation of Jesus' word versus those who are not. We see here again in this text two groups. Those who will recline at the Lord's table at the end of the age and those who will not. But this time Jesus takes the contrast to a provocative level by making what is nothing less than an absolutely scandalous claim. Namely that many Gentiles, like this centurion, were going to be at that feast while many Jews would miss out. We don't realize how scandalous that claim was when Jesus said what he says here in these final verses. First, Jesus declares that Gentiles, that this Gentile here, this centurion, has the greatest faith he's seen in all of Israel. Look at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. This in and of itself was quite a disconcerting comment to make for the Jews. Imagine his own disciples. (laughs) The 12 are sitting there going, no one, Jesus? No one in Israel? I mean, no one? Come on. This was was a shocking thing that they heard him say. But certainly the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were there would have been outraged by this comment. Here is this Gentile who is declared by Jesus to be in the kingdom. And of course, as Jesus refers to this, this feast here, he's referring back to passages like Isaiah 25 that we read earlier. So this was nothing short of scandalous. But Jesus is showing the far-reaching impact of the gospel. And that because he, Jesus, is the fulfillment of the law, therefore all barriers have been brought down for both Jew and Gentile. Look at what Jesus was about to do. Look at verse seven, and look at what Jesus was about to do. And he said to him, "I will come and heal him." But the centurion replied, "Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof." Jesus was going to enter a Gentile home. This was not permitted. This was unclean. He was going to go go to a dog's house. I wonder why Peter missed this in Acts. 10. I wonder why Peter missed this. The the Lord had to give him a a thrice-repeated vision to remind Peter that he could go into another centurion's home, a man named Cornelius. Peter had apparently not understood what, what Jesus was saying here. He didn't understand that when Jesus declared all foods clean in Mark chapter 7 verse 19, he was showing that he, Jesus, was tearing down the dividing wall of hostility between unclean and clean, between Jew and Gentile. What God has made clean do not call common was Jesus' word of rebuke to Peter in Acts 10. What God has made clean do not call common. Now for the Jew to eat with a Gentile was unclean. Plus, what they ate wasn't kosher. Yet here we read in verse 11. Listen to this. Many will come from the east and the west and recline at the table with who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Gentiles at the Lord's table in the consummated consummated kingdom reign. Jew and Gentile one in Christ. This is mind-blowing for the people that are listening to Jesus. It's mind-blowing for a lot of people today. Now Peter would eventually get it. Acts chapter 10 verse 28. He says, and now he's, he's speaking to Cornelius and Cornelius' household. He says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. What was the purpose of the vision of the foods for Peter? Not only to show that that no longer were these foods unclean, but it was also to show that there's no longer a division between Jew and Gentile. That's the main thing he's showing him. And so later when Peter brings the report to the church in Jerusalem, we read in Acts 11:18 that they glorified God and they said this. Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Yes, yes, yes. But they should have seen it way earlier. They should have seen it in this very event that Jesus was doing here. In Matthew chapter eight, it's interesting and quite telling that the gospel written most specifically to the Jewish believers. Well let me just give you a quiz here. Which gospel Matthew, Mark, Luke or John, which one of those four was written most specifically to the Jews? Matthew, it's very interesting that the gospel that's most specifically written to Jewish believers is the one that is most explicit about the gospel going out to the nations. That's telling. That's why in Matthew 28 we read, Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. We get our great commission from the most Jewish of all the four Gospels. That tells us something. The Gospel was to go to the far reaches of the earth to bring in God's kingdom people from east and west is what Jesus says. God was going to save his people, and his people were not merely ethnic Jews. They were from every tribe and every people and every language and every nation. That's why we pray for people groups. But oh, how many Jews missed this. They were ethnocentric in their understanding of God's work and God's word. They had their prideful hearts turned in on themselves, and they failed to trust God. And to understand the mandate that God had given them as as, as God's chosen nation to be a light to the world. They failed to see that God's kingdom was not about ethnicity but was about faith. So Jesus says in verse 12, The sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we don't have to rehash this, weeping and gnashing of teeth as we've observed before, that's hell. A few weeks back when I had a significant portion of my sermon where I talked about hell, it rocked my children, in particular, Emma Kate. they the middle of the week, and I think she has made a genuine profession of faith. We're still waiting and testing, but I'm hoping to baptize her soon. But that week, uh, the moon was rising. It was blood red. Y'all remember, we've had some blood moons recently. And one of the kids said, hey, that means Jesus is coming back. And she began to wail in the car and say, I haven't repented. I haven't repented. And that was the week after the hell sermon. So I knew it it got her. But it was genuine. She meant it. You know, that night she bowed with me and not my words that she repeated, but her words. She poured out the most beautiful prayer of repentance and faith that I've ever heard. It was beautiful. Now, I don't know why I went that way on my sermon, but other than to remind you, this weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's hell. That's hell. Look at the contrast here. Look at the contrast here. He mentions kingdom people twice. Verse 11, many will come from east and west to be in the kingdom of heaven. Yet, in verse 12, he says, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out. So here it is. Not everyone who is in the kingdom is in the kingdom. Not everyone who is in the kingdom Is in the kingdom. Just because one was ethnically in the kingdom didn't mean he or she was spiritually in the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying here. That's why he's saying kingdom twice. We see Paul say something similar about the Jewish people in Romans 9 verse 4. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Why is that? Well, Paul goes on. Jump down to verse 30 in Romans 9. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. What is Jesus astonished about? It's this man's faith. His works meant nothing. He had built synagogues. He had helped people. He was interceding for Jewish slaves, and it meant nothing. And neither do any of your good works before a righteous and holy God. The only thing that means anything before a righteous and holy God is one person who is obedient. That's Jesus Christ, the obedient son, the only Jew that kept the law. And if you're united to him, you're in. By faith and repentance is the way you're united to him. Do not stand before God and brag about your goodness. It'll be the last happy moment you have before you go to hell. So this man here was in the kingdom. He's in the kingdom. Jesus has said that he is in the kingdom. Paul says elsewhere in Galatians 3, verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So many of the Jews stumbled over the stumbling stone. They did not hear what John the Baptist said. John the Baptist came to prepare the way. And this is what John the Baptist said, to get those hard hearts ready. John the Baptist says this in Matthew 3, verse 9. He says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. God is the one who puts the kingdom together and he can use stones to do it it is by faith that we come to Christ that we come into the kingdom this centurion is being declared by Jesus in this text because of the feast that he is going to be belonging to that he is a child of Abraham he is a man of astonishing faith I mentioned that Jesus was only astonished twice friends Jesus was only astonished twice in the scriptures The second mention is in Mark chapter 6, when Jesus enters his own hometown of Nazareth to preach and minister to his people, yet he is rejected, his own people, his own family, his kinsmen, his Jewish brothers in the flesh, yet we read in Mark 6 verse 5, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled, it's the same word, he marveled because of their unbelief. There's only two places where Jesus marvels in the Scripture. One, it's at the faith of a centurion, a Gentile. The other is at the unbelief and the lack of faith of his own kinsmen. There are two places in Scripture where Jesus marvels. How astonishing it is that so many of those who had all the advantages of the old covenant could miss the Messiah. And how astonishing it is that Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision... By what is called the circumcision, which is made by the flesh by hands. That we who were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both, Jew and Gentile, one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body Through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That is astonishing. That is astonishing. Let's pray. Jesus, if there be anybody in this room that is not astonished that you save them, oh God, convict them of that horrendous sin right now. Oh, if we view our faith as some pedestrian act that we did by repeating a prayer, oh God, convict our hearts. We have been joined to the Son of God. We have been grafted into the people of God. God. We're going to be at a feast at a table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and this unnamed centurion and Cornelius, Peter and James and Paul and all the saints, both Jew and Gentile, who've ever existed from the beginning of time. We're going to be at this table, your people worshiping you, singing holy, holy, holy if that doesn't astonish us more than a half-court shot, oh, Father, convict our sinful, foolish hearts. Start with me. So, Father, I pray this morning, as my voice is going away, that you would just let your voice be heard. Let my voice fade. Let my voice fade behind Galatians 3. Let my voice fade behind Ephesians 2. Let my voice fade behind Romans 9. Let my voice fade behind Matthew 8. Let my voice fade behind the words of your son. Father, stir up astonishment in us again. And Lord, may our faith be such that we, like this centurion, recognize our own insufficiency. We recognize your supreme authority, and we praise you. We praise you for the diversity that you've brought into your kingdom. For who are we? I think everyone in here is a Gentile dog. Not any longer if we have faith in Christ. Not any longer. We have a seat at the table. Lord, help us to be astonished by that. Pray all these things in the precious name of our Savior, the obedient Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.